Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Thank you to Sarah and to Canella for a scripture passage beautifully read. About two weeks ago, three buses, three tourist buses, pulled up in front of a historic battlefield site. The people on board exited the buses and went to see the site. They were there to view, to reflect, to remember and to ponder the meaning of what that battle had for them in the contemporary world. You know what the experience is like. You've no doubt done it yourself. For example, when I was a young person, the years that I was in Texas growing up, the Battle of the Alamo was well known. If you visit the Alamo now, it's nestled in the heart of the city of San Antonio right downtown. But when you step inside the doorways of that old mission, you go back in mind and thought and heart to that day when the battle was fought, March 6, 1836, and you think of what is believed to have been 186 Texans and their friends who perished in that battle. It was part of what lit the spark of independence for that part of our country. In fact, it became the rallying cry for those who would fight for independence. Remember the Alamo. So you know what it's like to go to a scene like that and experience it. Maybe you haven't been to the Alamo. Maybe you have been to the beaches where D-Day took place, that largest seaborne invasion in all of human history that place where at least 4,400 Allied troop died, that place that became a seminal point in World War II. Historians write that because of the outcome of that battle on D-Day, the shift that happened in the war decided its outcome because now the Nazis were fighting a two-front war, a war they could not win, so it spelled the beginning of the end. When you're there today, it is quiet, serene, tranquil. It is so hard to picture the eruption of fighting on those beaches. But many visit and ponder the meaning of that place for history. Maybe you've been there. Or maybe you've been to that place, snuggled into the heart of the Pennsylvania countryside, that place called Gettysburg. Gettysburg, where the fierce, the intense fighting, in fact, maybe some of the most intense fighting in the Civil War took place. Again, historians would write, this was the key battle. This turned the tide in favor of preserving the Union. Somewhere around 8,000 troops died in those skirmishes in that battle that took place at Gettysburg. It's no wonder then 
that about four and a half months later, the president of the United States, President Abraham Lincoln, would stand there and would speak as he dedicated that soldier's national cemetery, would speak of what happened at that place using these immortal words. We have come to dedicate a portion of this field as a final resting place for those who here give the, gave their lives that this nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It's a sight like that that stirs us deeply, causing us to reflect on the battle that happened and what it meant for history. So it was that about two weeks ago, three buses pulled up in front of a battlefield site. Those on board exited the buses and began to walk the grounds, the grounds of a battlefield, a battlefield named Gethsemane. If the Alamo helped chart the history of Texas, if D-Day helped chart the history of World War II, if Gettysburg helped chart the history of the Civil War, then certainly Gethsemane helped chart human history because it was there that the supreme battle took place for the human soul. Human destiny hung in the balance as the Lord of life went to hand-to-hand -hand combat with the forces of death, the champion of love facing the architect of hate, he who lived only to bless and to heal, facing the realities of a darkness that only wanted to curse and damn. And it took place in a garden called Gethsemane. We have been walking through the final week of the life of Jesus on earth. We started with Sunday in the triumphal entry and the recognition that there's only one king. We continued into Monday and the temple takeover and the declaration of his messiahship. Tuesday came bringing with it those fights over authority. Who gave you authority to do this anyway? No doubt those religious leaders were still stinging in their hearts when on Wednesday a deal was made with the devil by one Judas Iscariot. I will turn him over to you. And now we come to Thursday. Now we come to this fifth day in that final week. This is a momentous day. Some call it Maundy Thursday. Some call it Holy Thursday. But whatever you may use to refer to it, make no mistake about it, this is the key day. The storm clouds roil. The forces of evil gather about themselves at their power in order to overcome him who is the Son of God. Thursday is a key day. In fact, on this day, on this Thursday of the final week of the life of Jesus, there are four scenes of which we should take note. 
foreseen scattered around the city of Jerusalem. Scene number one happens more than likely somewhere on the temple grounds. It is the place where the religious leaders gather together to scheme, to plan, to devise, to decide we must act and we must act now. They have their checklist. They're thinking through every possibility and every step. We have the guard we need to make an arrest. Check. We have some thugs available if we need to stir up the crowd. Check. We have the high priest and the previous high priest ready and waiting to do what we need. Check. Pontius Pilate is in town. In from his palace down at Caesarea Maritima, in for the celebration, we can use him to certify that an execution takes place. Check. They're going through their list, checking it twice and making certain that they are ready for what needs to happen. That's scene number one. Scene number two takes place undoubtedly in the Antonia Fortress. That structure, that architecture to the might of Rome and its dominance over Jerusalem overlooking the temple grounds is more than likely the place where the Roman captain gathered around him the cohort, the guard, and gave them very explicit instructions. Of any time in Jerusalem, this is the most dangerous and potentially deadly. Be on your watch. Make certain that no group begins to grow and coalesce. Stop it immediately. If you see anything like that developing, move in with overwhelming force. Be careful out there. There are zealots all throughout the city this time of year. If you need to use deadly force, do it. The emperor depends on us. That was scene number two. Scene number three would be easy to miss because it's a scene that looks like so many thousands, not just thousands, but tens of thousands of others in the city and outside of the city of Jerusalem at this time of year because scene number three is a cadre of men who have come together to make preparations for the Passover meal that evening. They are gathered together there at the behest of their teacher, the itinerant rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth. We don't have details as to how they spent the day hour by hour, but we can safely assume that the morning and maybe part of the afternoon was spent in preparing the lamb for the evening meal, the Passover lamb. And so as we look in on this on scene number three, we can see the group gathered around the Lamb. And one has to wonder, what went through the mind of Jesus as rough hands held the Lamb in place? Did he wince? When the Lamb was slaughtered, did he weep? When he saw this happen and recognized this was Passover and understood the tenor of the time, did a heaviness come over him? Did he understand 
the Lamb of God. That was scene number three. And scene number four. Scene number four you would not have seen even had you been there because Gethsemane, first and foremost, was a spiritual battle. Oh, it certainly had physical consequences about that, make no mistake. But it was first and foremost a spiritual battle. So scene number four would have been a spiritual scene, unrecognized by the naked human eye. But had you been able to see in the dim background, you would have seen the face of the Father the Father's face, watching every movement in every scene, listening to every inflection of every voice, watching the expression on every face, and watching with a sadness so profound as to be palpable. It's all happening on Thursday as speed picks up. The sands in the hourglass of the life of Jesus are down to just a few grains left. There is going to be a collision between these four scenes and what they produce, a vast collision, but that collision will have to wait because before the collision comes, there's a battlefield, a battlefield called Gethsemane. Please understand Gethsemane. There's a temptation to think that Gethsemane was just the quiet interlude before the storm erupted on Jesus. It was a quiet period of time where he could pray and contemplate and consider the realities of what he was facing. It's just a quiet interlude for prayer in a garden. That's all it is. Right? But if you think that, you would be very wrong because Gethsemane is the battlefield. This is where the fight will be won or lost. This is where the decision will be made. This is where the itinerant rabbi will once again become God in glory and turn his back on a planet. Or he will emerge from this place victorious to stand with kingly grace and power and humility to face the mocking, jeering crowd, having already made his decision. There is nothing that can scare him. One of those two will happen in Gethsemane. This is the battle. The British evangelist and preacher Leonard Ravenhill makes this brief but profound statement. Gethsemane is where he died. The cross is only the evidence. Gethsemane is the battlefield. This is where human history hangs in the balance. The popular preacher and writer Max Lucado 
elaborates on the significance of Gethsemane with these words. The Bible is the story of two gardens, Eden and Gethsemane. In the first, Adam took a fall. In the second, Jesus took a stand. In the first, God sought Adam. In the second, Jesus sought God. In Eden, Adam hid from God. In Gethsemane, Jesus emerged from the tomb. In Eden, Satan led Adam to a tree that led to his death. From Gethsemane, Jesus went to a tree that led to our life. Make no mistake about it. Gethsemane is the battlefield. It is in this place that your destiny and mine will be decided. This is no quiet interlude before the storm. This is the storm. Because after this, whatever storm may rage on the outside, the heart of Jesus can be at peace. He has made his decision. And so we come to Gethsemane. We come to Gethsemane to ponder, to think, to reflect, to relive and to understand just what that battle meant for us. Now understand Gethsemane is not the only event of that Thursday. The morning hours and many of the afternoon hours, we don't have a record. We can safely assume those were the hours in which the preparations were made for the meal that evening. But starting with the meal, we do have a record. So that when Jesus comes to Gethsemane, he has already transformed Passover into the Lord's Supper. When Jesus comes to Gethsemane, he has spent an extended time teaching his disciples some of his most profound and touching teaching. It is during that time that he has spoken with them about abiding in him. Unless you abide in me and I in you, you can do nothing. I am the vine, you are the branches. Unless the branch stays connected to the vine, you have no life in you. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it weren't so, would I have told you? I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again. He's already spoken those words by the time he reaches Gethsemane. In the world, he has said, you will have trouble, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. He has taught them deeply before Gethsemane. And he has prayed. He has prayed deep and long and powerfully. He's prayed for himself and his union with the Father. He must sense that yawning dark chasm that has already begun to separate them. He prays for he and the Father to be one. And then he prays for his disciples. Those you have given me, he says, keep them. And then he prayed for us for you and for me. Be with all those who will believe on me through their word that they may be one. All of that has happened before Gethsemane. But now he staggers down the Kidron Valley and up 
partway the Mount of Olives into this secluded place, this quiet garden, this place where the gentle dew settles upon the plants to face the fury of the battle. Allow Matthew's pen to be the lens through which we can peer through the darkness into what happened in Gethsemane. Matthew 26, beginning with verse 36, says this. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Two of the most powerful Greek words to describe profound anguish of soul. He became sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. The life is being crushed out of me. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men watch with me? For one hour, he asked Peter, Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near. And the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. He chooses three. Peter, James, John. Come with me deeper into the garden. Although they do not realize it at the time, they have just been given an invitation of staggering proportions. They have been invited to be eyewitnesses to the greatest soul battle in human history. You can be right there, up front, up close, personal. You can not only witness it, but you can hold the head of the one who struggles in your lap. You can assure him of your presence. You can tell him we're here with you. You can encourage his soul. You can be there when no other human eye will witness what you can see. It's all yours. And they sleep through it. Jesus just wants a companion, a sympathetic heart, a caring hand, Somebody to help carry the load. After World War II, Army historian Brigadier General S.L.A. Marshall interviewed 400 
infantry combatants from both the European and the Pacific theaters of war. He interviewed them carefully about their experiences and what had happened and what kept them and what encouraged them and what frightened them. He interviewed them, after which he said, if there's any conclusion I can make, it is this. The most important reality to a soldier going into conflict is the presence of a comrade, knowing I don't go alone. Somebody is with me. That's what Jesus wanted. Can't you be with me? Peter, you said you would die with me. Can't you pray with me? You would be willing to sacrifice your life. Can you not for just one hour? Just one hour. Be close by. The entire life of Jesus has been lived to make real what God desires for humanity. Emmanuel, God with us. And now that God who is with us is saying to us as humanity, is there anyone here who will be with me? As I face the darkness, the soul struggle, as I face this increasingly impenetrable darkness that is separating me from the Father, is there no one who can be with me? And they slept. Three times Jesus prayed. Though the wording varies somewhat between the Gospels, the core essence of the prayer remains the same. Father, please take this cup away. Apparently, everything within that righteous soul shrunk back from what lay before him. Some scholars suggest a thought that is corroborated by Ellen White that as this weekend approached, Jesus could not see through the portals of the tomb, could not see his way through to the other side, but that there very well could have been within him a sense that this will be an eternal separation. And he shrunk back. Everything within him said, leave, turn on your heel, return through the gates of glory from whence you came. Be once more united with the Father. But one thought kept him clutching the clammy earth. And that one thought was eternity without you. I can't face it. I can't face that possibility. Father, please, Father, please. Three times he prayed. But each time he prayed, he ended with a phrase. It's the phrase that becomes emblematic of this spiritual battle in Gethsemane. 
It is the phrase that is the most difficult phrase to pray with any degree of honesty and sincerity. It is the phrase from which I have shirked many times. It is a phrase that may find difficulty falling from your lips. It is the phrase that to the Son of God was the supreme agony and anguish of his soul. Please, Father, please take it away. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. To that phrase, we owe our hope. To that phrase, we owe our destiny. To that phrase, a planet, a planet in rebellion, a planet that the next day will have representatives who will mock and jeer and scorn him. To that phrase, they and we owe the possibility of reconciliation with God. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. How can we possibly enter into the experience, into the anguish of Jesus in Gethsemane? Well, the answer to that is very simple. We cannot. Human beings cannot have the experience as God wrestles with God fighting that separation, trying to plumb the depths of the darkness that sin has brought. We cannot understand it. We're told that it will be our science and song throughout eternity. However, having said that, we can get a superficial taste of what that meant if we consider the times in our own lives when we have profoundly wrestled with being able to honestly pray those words, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That's a taste. Because the truth is, whether or not you have ever walked the garden paths of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem, you have faced your own private Gethsemane. Every single one of us has a private Gethsemane. Many of you are in that Gethsemane here today. That situation, that circumstance in your life where with all your might, all the strength within you, you are fighting against something. You are unwilling to release it to the possibility that God might want something different than what you want. I know that. How many times have I been at that place? It's my own, it's your own private Gethsemane. And as that soul battle rages, the one reality that will give victory is the one reality we don't want. Nevertheless, Father, not my will, but yours be done.
What is that like? What is it like to pray that prayer? I would call three witnesses. Three witnesses that can give us a window into such an experience. The first witness is a Christian psychologist and researcher by the name of Jamie Aten, A-T-E-N, Jamie Aten, diagnosed at 35 with stage 4 colon cancer. I want to read you in Aten's words about his experience. For the first six months, he writes, Whenever I asked for a prognosis, all my oncologist would say was, I can't tell you that it's going to be okay, Jamie. It's too early to tell. If there's anyone you want to see or anything you want to do, now is the time. Cancer wasn't the first disaster I had faced. My family and I had moved to South Mississippi six days before Hurricane Katrina. But this disaster was different. There was no opportunity to evacuate as I did before Katrina made landfall. This time the disaster was striking within. I was a walking disaster. Aiton then goes on to talk about what he calls spiritual surrender. Now I go back to his words. Spiritual surrender helps us understand what we have control over and what we don't. In a research study I led after Katrina, we found that people who showed higher levels of spiritual surrender tended to do better. This finding didn't make sense to me at the time. It seemed like a passive faith response. Fast forward to my cancer disaster. I vividly remember taking the trash to the curb one winter morning while praying that God would heal me. The freezing air felt like tiny razor blades cutting across my hands and feet because of the nerve sensitivity caused by the chemotherapy. Wondering if God even heard my prayers for healing, I kept praying as I walked back inside my home. Then all of a sudden, I dropped to my knees and prayed the most challenging prayer of my life. Instead of continuing to pray for God's healing, I asked that God would take care of my wife and children if I didn't make it. This was the hardest prayer I had ever prayed. For the first time in my life, I truly experienced spiritual surrender. I finally understood. Listen to these words. True spiritual surrender is far from passive. It is a willful act of obedience. What did it look like in Aten's life? To pray, your will, not mine, be done, was a willful act of obedience. I am making the choice to place my life in your hand. and no longer try to control it. Witness number one. Witness number two. The Christian pastor, preacher, and writer Ray Ortland. Ortland writing in his Christ is Deeper Still blog 
writes this. You and I are not integrated, unified, whole persons. Our hearts are multi-divided. It's like we have a boardroom in every heart. Imagine a big table, leather chairs, coffee, bottled water, and a whiteboard. A committee sits around the table in your heart. There's the social self, the private self, the work self, the sexual self, the recreational self, the religious self, and others. The committee is arguing and debating and voting, constantly agitated and upset. Rarely can they come to a unanimous, wholehearted decision. We tell ourselves we're this way because we're so busy and with so many responsibilities, but the truth is we're just divided, unfocused, hesitant, unfree. That kind of person can accept Jesus in two ways. One way is to invite him into the committee, give him a vote too. But then he just becomes one more complication. The other way to accept Jesus is to say to him, my life isn't working. Please come in and fire my committee, every last one of them. I hand myself over to you. I am your responsibility now. Please run my whole life for me. Your will, not mine, be done. Ortland's testimony is that victory comes in choosing to surrender on the battlefield of Gethsemane. That's witness number two. And witness number three is Mustafa. Mustafa the tailor. Mustafa the tailor became a Christ follower when he made the choice to move from what had been his religion of Islam into Christian faith, a prayer has been attributed to Mustafa the tailor. I want you to hear that prayer. O oh God, I am Mustafa the tailor, and I work at the shop of Muhammad. The whole day long I sit and pull the needle and the thread through the cloth. Oh, God, you are the needle, and I am the thread. I am attached to you, and I follow you. When the thread tries to slip away from the needle, it becomes tangled and must be cut so that it can be put back in the right place. Oh, God, help me to follow you wherever you lead me, for I am really only Mustafa the tailor. And I work in the shop of Muhammad on the great square. What does Mustafa tell us? His testimony is that to pray, your will, not mine, be done, is to stay intricately and intimately connected to the needle. I am but the thread, you are the needle. Keep me attached to you so that wherever you go, I might follow. That's witness number three. Maybe they give us indications as to what your private Gethsemane and mine might be like. 
But whatever it's like, that phrase is the phrase we are tempted not to pray, but in which victory is found. Not my will, but yours be done. Gethsemane. So you can understand why a couple of weeks ago three buses stopped near Gethsemane. And all those on board exited the buses and spent an hour in that garden. I was on one of those buses. I entered the garden with family and friends. A garden with old, gnarled olive trees, hundreds of years old, standing as silent sentinels to the ground in which the greatest spiritual battle took place. We pondered. We prayed. We tried to somehow take in its realities. And after an hour, we boarded the buses again, and we left. Because as the crow flies, it is less than a mile from Gethsemane to Golgotha. And Friday was coming. 